Good morning again, Hill family. If you have a Bible, please open it to uh, the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1 is our brother Matt read for us this morning. If you want to know where Ruth is, turn to the front of your Bible. I think it's the eighth book of the Bible. Joshua Judges and then Ruth will put you there. If you're in a pew Bible, I think it's about 265, 270 will put you, I think, in the right place. One, uh, just a kind of emphasize uh, announcement Wednesday this Wednesday we're going to have our community group gathering here so it'll be a time of worship prayer but a time for you to know more about community groups if you're already in a community group we invite you to be here to walk through that process with us and just worship the Lord together um, if you're not in a community group we want to share with you how we think about community groups we want to open up the scriptures and think about the topic of community from the Bible and then we want to help you get apart, get connected to a community group. So there'll be opportunities for you to do that. So please be here Wednesday, this Wednesday at 6 p.m. together as a church, and we will uh, think together about community here at the Hill. Ruth chapter 1. The love is a funny thing. Love makes you do funny things. When Julie and I first began dating uh, we had something of a long-distance uh, relationship. She was going to college in South Carolina. I was living in Atlanta at the time. And during that time, uh, though some of you will have no idea what I'm talking about, there was a thing called long-distance phone calls with inside the United States. Cell phone plans came with limited coverage, which meant for me to call Julie's dorm room in Clemson in South Carolina from Atlanta required a long-distance phone card. I can remember getting off work. I would drive out of my way. I would go stand in line so that I could get a card with an especially good rate. It was about 25 cents a minute. And it, it needed a low connection rate as well because uh, if I called Julie and she didn't pick up, I would get charged about $1.50 just for allowing those rings to take place. But here's where the funny part of the whole thing really is. I would go through all of that trouble to have then about a two-hour conversation with Julie, the contents of which could have been wrapped up in about 10 minutes. I would pay 25 cents a minute to mostly just breathe on the phone with Julie on the other end. But I guess after 20 years of marriage and after marrying off my first son yesterday, I can say it's worth every penny of it thus far. Love is a funny thing. Romance makes us do funny things. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be studying together one of the greatest love stories, one of the greatest stories of romance in our Bibles found in the book of Ruth. And we're going to do that under the title of The Romance of Redemption. Everyone loves once upon a time. Everyone loves they lived happily ever after stories. Ruth comes to us as the loveliest of love stories. In just four short chapters, we will encounter literary expertise and theological depth at its very best. And like most good love stories, two unlikely people unite. Romeo and Juliet, Beauty and the Beast, Albert Brenneman and Allegra Cole. If you don't know that story, shame on you. Our story involves Boaz, uh, Bethlehemite, and Ruth, a Moabite widow. Boaz is the, is the gentleman who points us to Jesus. Uh, the one who extends his 
kindness and His justice, His steadfast care to Ruth. Ruth is a foreigner. She's the one who becomes, but she's a foreigner who becomes the mother, one of the mothers in the line of Jesus, appearing actually in the genealogy of Matthew. And Ruth itself is a surprising and very unlikely, unlikely title for the book. For one, as I mentioned, she's a Moabite. Ruth's not Jewish. Five times in this book, Ruth will be identified as Ruth the Moabite. This is the only book in the Old Testament named after a non-Israelite, let alone a Moabite. And Ruth isn't really the main character of the narrative anyway. Apart from it being God being the main character, Naomi is the main human character. And by the end of the story, we're going to see why that's the case. So why study the book of Ruth? I thought I'd give us at least a few reasons before we jump in. Outside of it being the Word of God, and we should study it just for that very reason, um, it's an excellent love story, first of all. Uh, Given the confusion in our culture surrounding sex and dating and marriage, there is much to glean from this wonderful story. The way Ruth and Boaz come together is of epic proportion. Better than anything you can watch on Netflix for sure. Secondly, in this little book, we come face to face with God's heart for the nations. God extends His covenant love, His faithfulness to a Moabite woman in order to perpetuate His royal line, bringing about King David Ultimately, He will bring about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Ruth demonstrates God's heart for all peoples and for the nations. And thirdly, the book of Ruth points us to the glory of Jesus. From its darkest moments, Ruth is a story of God preparing the world for His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's at least one more reason we're going to study the book of Ruth, and it leads into our very text this morning. Ruth gives us a a portrait, or it provides us a window into God's meticulous providence. And by providence, I mean God's governing care, His sustaining work in the world. Coincidence, good luck, something being by chance, are entirely unbiblical terms. And we're going to see that in the book of Ruth as we move through it. We're going to be confronted with a sovereign, loving faithful God on every page of this beautiful narrative. Despite the unfaithfulness of His people, God is going to remain faithful. He works through, the seemingly, this, through this seemingly insignificant family in a detailed and amazing way to bring about His redemptive purposes in and through Jesus Christ. And yet it's possible to miss His sovereign hand, His loving care, His faithful purposes, if we lack proper eyes of faith to see them. Faith calls us, beloved, to see beyond circumstances to the faithfulness of our God. If I could say that more succinctly from Ruth chapter 1, I would say it this way. By faith, we must see beyond the circumstances of life to the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ. By faith, we see, we must see beyond the circumstances of life to the faithfulness of God in Jesus. Since our brother Matt read, we have an extended portion of text. Since our brother Matt already read it for us, I'm not going to read it in its entirety. I'll go through it as we break it apart this morning. But I do want to pray and ask the Lord's help as we begin. Now, Jesus, we thank you 
for your sovereign care, your loving protection. We thank you for your gracious hand in our lives. And it's to, to that end of wanting to see you, know you better, walk with you more faithfully that we turn our attention these next four weeks to the book of Ruth. Lord, in the midst of all the wonderful details and twists and turns of the plot of this story, let us not miss the purpose of it all, that we might see Jesus, that we might see, that we might see the glorious, wonderful plan of a God who is faithful in every way to bring about that which we need, Jesus. So, Lord, to that end, we turn our attention now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is a brilliant narrative. I, I can't say it any other way. I would highly encourage you to read this narrative continuously over the next couple of weeks. Read it, take notes, work through it. It's a brilliant piece. of li- It's a literary masterpiece. So I'm going to try to do my very best as we go through it over these next four weeks to not kind of uh, overcomplicate it or, or, or take away from it with some detailed outline. Instead, I'm going to just offer some headings along the way to kind of move us forward and hopefully let the narrative kind of do the work. So we'll begin with what we see kind of as a downward spiral in the narrative to start with. The opening five verses, they paint a bleak, a bleak picture for us, a downward spiral of problems. Look at verse 1, put your eyes there. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now that phrase, in the days when the judges ruled, was a dark descriptor of a time in the life of Israel. If you simply turn your eyes back to the the last line of the previous book, Judges chapter 21, verse 25, you turn your eyes there, you'll see in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So moral decline stemming from idolatrous worship characterized the nation of Israel at this time. Rebellion and moral decay were common in the land. And to make matters worse, in our text, there's also a famine in the land. A famine in Bethlehem, it says. And the irony of that is thick, as Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. It's like being at Subway and walking in at lunchtime and them telling you, hey, sorry, we're out of bread. Spiritually and physically, the land of Israel, Bethlehem of Judah, was in trouble. The house of bread has no bread. That's what the author is telling us. In verse 2, we are introduced, though, to this man named Elimelech, whose name means, my God is king. However, rather than believing the truth of his very name, Elimelech makes the pragmatic decision to flee Bethlehem, for the forbidden land of Moab with his two wives, with his, two, with his wife and two sons. And then in verse 3, we read that Elimelech dies. The language here is very, very cold and hard. He leaves Bethlehem to avoid death, yet only to find it in Moab. And we don't know why. What we do know is that Naomi, his wife, is now a widow. And she's a widow in a foreign land with her two young boys. And to be a widow in this time period, we might could say, is just pure tragedy. But then next, the unthinkable happens. Both her boys marry Moabite women named Orpha and Ruth. Moab was an enemy people of Israel. 
They didn't worship the one true God, Yahweh. They worshiped the false gods of Moloch and Baal. Naomi now finds herself a widow in a foreign land with two Moabite daughters. The end of verse 4 says, They lived in Moab for four years until the darkest moment strikes. Both Naomi's boys die. Again, the text is eerily silent as to why. But they're both gone. And they're both gone, narrowing the narrative on Naomi now, who has made it to the bottom of this spiral of tragedy. She has no husband, no chance of financial gain, no sons, foreign daughters, no children, no one to continue the family line. Notice how verse 5 neglects to even mention her name, the woman was left without her two sons and, and husband. This really is the worst situation for her. She's a widow who had to bury her two sons in a foreign land. Darkness has set in as Naomi, the only other way to say it, finds herself at the bottom. I wonder, have you been there? Maybe the details are different for sure. But do you know what it's like to feel as though everything has come crashing down on you? Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. If not, I would say lovingly, graciously to you that circumstances change quickly in this life. You can be physically healthy and get one doctor visit to find your world literally flipped upside down. One car crash. One phone call. One tragic decision by a loved one, everything can be changed in a matter of seconds. We live in a world where, honestly, life-altering disasters are potentially around every single corner. Life is not always sunsets at the beach. Well, beloved, welcome to the book of Ruth. Maybe you're thinking, I thought you said this was a love story of romance and redemption. One of happily ever after. It is. But this is no Disney movie. This is a real life fairy tale. And this is real life. This is God's fairy tale. God's happily ever after. Which means the dark circumstances of our lives provide the backdrop upon which the jewel of God's providence can shine. God's providential hand remains everywhere in this book. And again, by providence, we're talking about God's wisdom, God's grace, God's provision, His sustaining power in the world. Simply put, God is in control. God is good. And He's ordering the events of our lives we must learn to trust His hand. It's interesting, we're not going to find one single miracle in the book of Ruth. You're not really going to find any extraordinary events in the book of Ruth. There's no visions, we've been in the book of Acts, there's no dreams. Instead, what we do find is the quiet hand of God's providence carrying along this story to its rightful end. Amid all the darkness and downward spiral, we find a sovereign, loving, faithful God working on behalf of His people. And that's the story of Ruth. 
And brothers and sisters, that's the story of our lives. Sometimes we can't see God working, right? Often we might say we don't see God working. We might not understand what exactly He's doing. Circumstances tend to blind us, but it's in those moments we must trust His sovereign hand. God's invisible, loving, sovereign hand is the story of the book of Ruth. And this is where we see in the rest of the chapter, in the rest of chapter 1, as we go from the problems or this downward spiral to this providential return, as I would use that as a heading next, the providential return. In verse 6, we find the first glimmer of hope in this story, the first instance of God's hand at work. Look at it. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and He had given them food. So the plot of this great story thickens as the ball of God's redemption begins rolling. The Lord appears in verse 6. Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who preserved His people in Egypt during famine, the faithful, loving God who rescued His people from slavery under Pharaoh, the faithful covenant keeping God now steps on the scene. And his, he visits his people that he would care for his people. That he sustains his people. And he provides them with food. Because of this, Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem. And for the next 11 verses in the narrative, from verse 7 to verse 18, I guess there's a few more than 11, the faith of this special young woman named Ruth is going to shine forth. And we see this through, really through three conversations. You heard it read earlier. Let me read it again in verse... Let me read verses 7 and 9 again here. We see, So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up her voice and wept. So you can hear the the tenderness, the love, and the affection Naomi has for her daughters-in-law. There's nothing here for you in Bethlehem, she says. You deserve a husband and a home and you're you're not going to find it here with me. This was a difficult culture for a, a widow. Naomi pleads with them to return as she she prays a blessing over them that God would show His kindness in the same way they had extended kindness to her and her boys. Important word in this whole story of Ruth, really the backbone of it is this word kindness. And we're going to expound it throughout our study as we go along, but we should at least pause and consider its significance here. The The word itself, as I said, we could say binds or holds this story together. The word is hesed. And it could be translated as loyal love, faithful love, steadfast love. It's most commonly when you see that word in the Old Testament, this is the word behind it. It's God's covenant love, His loyalty to His people. It's the most common and significant description of God in the Old Testament is that He is a covenant-keeping God. He's a loving God, demonstrated through His faithfulness. When we hear of God's faithfulness, we hear of His love and His commitment to His people. 
And since Orpha and Ruth have showed kindness to Naomi for ten years, now Naomi's heart, heart's desire is that God would extend the same kindness to them. And her prayer brings all three of them to tears. But their commitment to return with Naomi it seems to be unshakable. Verse 10. And they said to her, No, we will return with, with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, uh, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, if, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. Naomi gets even more poignant. She says, look, I don't even have a husband who could impregnate me. And even if I did, what is the chance of having twins? And then even if I have twins, are you girls going to wait until they're older to marry them? You will be old yourself by then. She's pleading with them to return. She says, you're young. You girls have your whole life ahead of you. Bethlehem, there's no future for you. And then she makes the statement at the end of verse 13, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and together they wept, the text says. Now it's common, and I think right, it's not a wrong thing. I think it's common and it deserves, Naomi deserves some criticism here for her lack of faith and her grumbling spirit. She says it's bitter to me. And she wants the girls, she's even wanting the girls to go back to Moab, a place which worships foreign gods instead of going with her to Bethlehem. So I think there is some received criticism here on her part. That's right. But while there are aspects of Naomi's lack of faith that deserve a level of critique, I think we should be careful not to miss the faith of Naomi behind this bitterness. Naomi is not happy. She's certainly confused. She is disheartened, even bitter, by the last ten years, no doubt. But Naomi is still dealing with the Lord. She's not running from the Lord. How often do we, when difficult circumstances arise in our lives, find ourselves fleeting from the Lord? Naomi is clear, this is a hard providence. And this is a frowning providence. But she's also clear this is God's providence. She recognizes God's hand. Naomi recognizes that at, as difficult as this situation is, this situation is still under the sovereign care of her God. Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be His name. I wonder, do you, Christian, have a category for this type of faith? For a type of raw, honest, lamenting type of faith before the Lord? David cried out in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my own heart all the day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? David was honest and raw. This type of faith which we see in David, we see in Naomi here. And I believe it shows us not a lack of faith, but a sincere wrestling with faith. Naomi has some unshakable convictions. She doesn't have all the answers. She's not putting on a fake smile to cover up her pain. She's struggling. But she's struggling with God honestly as she heads back to Bethlehem. Naomi's faith, I think, is real in the narrative. I think it's something we should... I think it's something that comes right at us on the, on the lower shelf that we can grab hold of and recognize. It's a faith we can feel. It's a faith we can understand. Just like our faith, it deserves critique, right? Our faith, our faith often needs critique. Mine does. It's often lacking. But because of the sovereign, loving care of our God, whom our faith rests in, our faith endures. It presses on. That's Naomi here. This is a th- I think this is an example of a I believe but help my unbelief type of faith on Naomi's part. So now these ladies, they embrace and they weep again. Read verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So beginning in verse 14 down to verse 18, we see a faith that we should emulate here on behalf of Ruth. And there's a contrast in the narrative here, a contrast of faith, right? Orpha leaves. She calculates the situation. If I stay, if I, if I stay in Moab here, husband, land, children, security are offered to me. If I go to Judah, seems to be no husband, no land, no inheritance. All I'm promised is, all I'm promised is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Orpha's faith seems to fizzle here. She seems to count the cost and choose a different direction. Orpha's response, though, honestly, if we're, if we're honest about the narrative, her response is the reasonable one, if you'll let me use that language. It makes the most sense on paper. If she was to sit down with some friends and whiteboard what decision she would make, this is the one they would come to. It's the advice you might expect from some of your friends. But Ruth's response is different. You see, Ruth's response makes very little sense apart from faith. And it's a reminder to us that following Christ is not going to make a lot of sense to people in your life. You choosing Jesus, you choosing to live for Him and deny to pursue the values of this world will cause you to be looked at with suspicion often in this life. So where Orpha ends the relationship with a kiss, the text says, but Ruth clung to her. This word clung is the same word translated hold fast or cleave from Genesis 2.24. Speaking of marriage, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife. It's a word I used multiple times yesterday as I oversaw a wedding. It's a strong word. It's an active word. 
It's a word of commitment. It's a word of faith. And this scene depicts, I think, the cost of discipleship. Reflected through the words of Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To be a Christian is to say yes to Jesus, beloved, without the promise of really anything else. The only promise we receive is that we will know the one true and living God. That He will birth us by His Spirit. And that He will see us through to our eternal reward. You can keep everything you have. You can gain the world, but lose Jesus. Or you can choose Jesus to follow Him and to live for Him and in turn, turn your back on the world. Ruth chooses faith over everything else here. She trusted the Lord. Now, am I reading too much into this story? Did she really choose the Lord or simply did she choose Naomi in comfort of Naomi? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law, she tells her. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. These four verses center on this declaration that Ruth makes in verse 16. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Ruth is here repeating the central covenant promise that God made with His people Israel. This statement is a, is a declaration all throughout the Old Testament of who God is. He's the faithful, loving God. It's evidence that Ruth knows Yahweh. To know this promise is to know the God of the Bible. Ruth's statement, I want you to hear this, is not a declaration of what she will do when she gets to Bethlehem. Ruth's statement is a declaration regarding what she has already done. It's a declaration of faith. She's already placed faith in Yahweh, in the God of Israel. My God, your God is my God. Ruth committed herself to Naomi. Absolutely she did, but she committed herself first to the Lord. Orpha takes the, we might say in, in the words of Jesus, the broad and easy road. Ruth takes the difficult, narrow road of faith. Ruth is leaving family and land. And for all she knows, consider it. All Ruth knows. Most likely, she's accepting a life of widowhood and singleness in Bethlehem. But she commits herself to the Lord. And here's the beautiful part about faith. Ruth's faith, this moment in the narrative, affects all of human history. Though she's clueless to it now, she's going to meet Boaz. She's going to have a son named Obed. 
who will father a boy named Jesse, who will in turn father King David. And we know from Matthew's Gospel, Jesus comes to us as the Son of David. Jesus, the Savior of the world, is born through the line of this obscure Moabite woman, but this obscure Moabite woman who exercised faith which God used mightily that affects every one of us in this room. Christian, never underestimate the effect of your faith on other people. Your faith might not, no, let me, your faith will not give rise to the birth of the Son of God. But it does affect your family members, your classmates, your co workers, your friends, your children, your grandchildren, and your spouses. Ruth has no idea her name is going to be recorded in the book of Matthew, in the genealogy of Jesus. She dies never knowing this. And we too may die never seeing the effects of our faith until we get to heaven. But the story of Ruth's life testifies that we can trust that it does have effect. Be faithful. I think we find in Ruth here what it means to be a Christian. It looks like turning from everything if needed for the treasure of salvation in Jesus. It, it, it's seeing the, the true value and the supremacy of Jesus over everything else. It means to love God and to love His people. That's what it means. It means believing that even if you lose everything, you still want Jesus. Being a Christian, embracing the life of faith in Jesus Christ is to give up all that you are to receive all that He is. Ruth took that step of faith. Have you done that? Is that your confession today? There's only one way to enter into a relationship with God. And it's through the person and work of Jesus. Have you entered into a relationship with God through Jesus? That simple and direct to you. Have you turned your back on the false promises of this world to embrace Jesus as your Savior, the one who died for your sins? In that declaration by Ruth, I think we see what becoming a Christian really looks like. Verse 18 and 19, put your eyes there. It says, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem. We'll look at the future hope here. The future hope is kind of how I'm heading this one. Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem in Judah. The whole town is stirred up, it says. The women respond and whisper, is this Naomi? Probably wondering, where's her husband? Where are her boys? Who is that foreigner with her? This is the ancient world's version of Facebook stalking here going on. And yet even the sound of her own name, Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet, is too hard for her to hear. Verse 20 says, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, uh, call me Mara. 
For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full when the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Again, there's critique here. But I think instead of dismissing Naomi, we should learn from Naomi. She's sure about three things at least. She's sure that God exists. She's sure that God is sovereign. But she also says surely that God has dealt bitterly with her. You see, again, Naomi's real here. Naomi's honest here. Something we often have a hard time doing with the Lord. But Naomi is also blinded by her circumstances. Naomi can't see past the heartache of the past ten years. Naomi needs to open her eyes. She needs the eyes of faith to be further focused. To see the sign of God's mercy and grace right in front of her. It was God who took away the famine. And it was God who brought word to her in a foreign land that the famine was over. And more importantly, it was God who brought her Ruth. And what a gift she is. What a blessing of a daughter. The faith of this foreign Moabite woman has carried her back to Bethlehem. Yet as Ruth stands before the people of the town, she says, the Lord brought me back empty. There's the word. That's the word that demonstrates she's blinded by her circumstances. No, Naomi. That's not true. You're not empty. You didn't come back empty. You've come back with Ruth. Naomi is so weary from the last ten years, she can't see what God is doing right in front of her. She's blinded by her circumstances. And isn't that a danger for every one of us? How often are we blinded to the grace of God in our lives by being fixated on circumstances we're currently going through? Let me just pause and reflect for a moment if you've been walking with the Lord. What circumstances in your past have you went through? That maybe in the moment you were completely distracted. You might not have confessed what Naomi confessed, but you felt it. You wanted to confess it. That you're empty. God's taken everything from you. You're bitter. Now, how, how can you see this many years later how God was with you every step of the way? And then, beloved, that's what it means to be part of a church, right? Have younger people, older people, people who've been through really dark situations in our life, and sometimes we get it twisted and we want to hide those stories and not share our hurts and pains with people. But being a Christian, being a mature Christian, is being able to see God's hand carrying you through them. And then the church family, it's able to share those with people and to remind people of God's faithfulness, what He's done, how He's carried you through. So are there circumstances in your past or 
currently things now you're going through that are keeping you from seeing God's grace in your life. Sight is a precious thing. And blindness can be debilitating. If Naomi could only see a glimpse of what God is up to. Right? If she could only see what's fixing to happen in the next three chapters. Just a glimpse of it. What if she knew that God was preparing the stage for Ruth to marry Boaz? To save their family line, to perpetuate an inheritance for her. What if she knew that God was going to use Ruth to shape a genealogy that would bring about the Lord Jesus, the Savior of the world? We have to remember, Christians, that sin, grief, pain in our past and our present cannot dispel hope for our future because of the grace of God in Christ. Notice the touch of hope in verse 22 of this narrative. This is a brilliant narrative. I'm trying to tell y'all. Y'all got to read it. So Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Look at this last line. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. It is this barley field where Ruth is going to meet Boaz, her future husband and redeemer. Naomi believes they're just coming back to get bread. But God's got something else prepared for them. A much more significant bread. You see, Naomi's life is it's not much different than ours. We don't see the next chapter either. God doesn't show us the chapters ahead in our life. We have to learn to trust the hand of our faithful God and rest in His future grace as we walk through this life. What is our future grace, beloved? It's bread. As in this narrative, it's bread. It's a greater bread. In just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper as a picture of that. We're going to come to the table in a minute, and this table testifies that we have a, a greater bread. Jesus Christ, born in the town of Bethlehem, in the same fields where Ruth will glean next week to meet Boaz, shepherds keeping watch will one day sing with great joy. For in the town of Bethlehem, the house of bread, a Savior is born unto us. And we know our, our Savior, Jesus, has come to us as the bread of life, He says. So that those who receive Him will never hunger ever again. The table reminds us of a greater bread that we have. The table also reminds us of a greater kindness that God's shown us. We know God's loyal love. We know God's covenant love. We know His faithful love for us in Jesus Christ. Because of our sin, we, de we deserve death and punishment. Yet we receive kindness, steadfast love, mercy from the Lord in, in Jesus Christ. So I don't know 
everything about your past. Nobody in this room probably does. I don't really know what's really going on in most of your present circumstances. But based on the authority of God's word, if you're a believer, I can be sure about your future. And if you are not a Christian this morning, I know what can be your future. This table testifies that God is faithful. This table testifies that God demonstrates His faithfulness to us by sending His Son into the world to die for our sins. For God to be our God and for us to be His people, something had to be done about our sin. And though our sin separates us from a holy God, Jesus came and died in our place as our substitute to forgive us of our sins. You see, God is faithful. You see, God is good. And we accept His sovereign hand by faith. So this table which we're about to take part in serves as a reminder. It provides us the opportunity to to confess the truth that no matter the darkness of our sin, no matter the depth of our past failures, no matter the difficulties of our present pain, we possess hope for the future because of God's grace. That's what the table represents. See, as God's people, we, we must never allow the circumstances of this life to distract us from God's faithfulness, which we know in Jesus. So I'm going to, just a moment, we're going to come forward to receive the Lord's Supper. If you're a believer this morning, We invite you to come to the table. We invite you to come through the middle aisle in just a moment. Receive uh, the cup and the wafer and go back around to your seat. Now, as an illustration of both our individual and corporate call of our discipleship, this text really lays, I think, out this individual call of our discipleship. You're going to take the bread yourself okay, while we sing the next song. Prayerfully, reflectively, you're going to take that yourself as an act of your individual, as a picture of your individual discipleship. We got that head nod? All right. As a, individually, you're going to take it. And then as a picture of our corporate identity as the body of Christ being washed in His blood, I will then come back up after we sing and lead us in taking the cup by itself. I mean, together as a, as a church, just by itself. If you're not a believer this morning, please... I don't invite you to come, but please don't check out. The service is not over for you. Honestly, the service can just begin for you. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to understand what this table truly represents. It's not just a religious ritual we go through. We're saying this is our life. Apart from the reality of what this table represents, we're dead, lost, separated from God in our sin, every one of us. None of us come to this table because we're good. We come to this table because we're not good. And we need the Lord. We come to this table because He laid down His life for us, the only good one. And that we would walk in the truth of that reality. So if you are a believer, come forward. Receive the supper. Come back around to your seat. Take the bread individually as we sing. I'll lead us in taking the cup afterwards. If you're not a believer, come to Jesus. Pray. Repent of your sins. Trust the Lord. I'm going to read. I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to read. 
the first half of First uh, Corinthians, and then I'll come back up and lead us in taking uh, the cup afterwards. Father, we thank you uh, for your sovereign, steadfast, wonderful love. Uh, we're grateful for this beautiful story that we're just kind of dipping our toe into the pool of this morning. We're thankful for uh, both the portraits of faith that we see in Naomi and in Ruth. We see the reality that life is hard. That, Lord, there's times that we look up and we feel like, Lord, where are you? What have you done to me? Why have you allowed this to happen in my life? But God, we see in Naomi, in the midst of all her confusion, yes, a faith that needs to be critiqued, a faith that's struggling, a faith that still is still moving forward. And it's a reminder, Lord, that uh, the strength of our faith is not in our own resolve. Faith is something you give us. And faith is that which you guard and empower through the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, Lord. So we thank you for the reality of faith. But God, we recognize that faith, we have to use it and build it like a muscle in our life. So God, as we think about Ruth, we're thankful for her life. We're thankful for the clarity of this young girl to count the cost, to say, yes, maybe what lies ahead of me is singleness and desire and comfort and all the things that this world says I must have. But even if none of those come about, you're sweeter, Lord. And we thank you for that clarity in her. And that's what we're saying today, Jesus. As we come to the table, we're saying you are everything to us. More than anything this world has to offer, we desire you. And we're thankful that we know you. We're thankful for your life. We're thankful for your death. We're thankful for your body that was broken, your blood that was shed on our behalf. And we come as an act of faith even this morning. Help us to confess our sin as we come to the table. We don't come in pride, Lord. We come in humility. We're sinners. Poor and needy. But we come believing that you take poor and needy sinners and make them saints through your work. So Jesus, we love you. We thank you. In your name we pray.